As we spend our time today considering the holy covenant that we call marriage, it's our desire to provide you with the biblical tools that we need so that we can all maintain our marital commitments. And knowing that there may be some here today who have already decided that the holy state of matrimony is a mission that's impossible, well, I want to assure you that those who will apply the biblical principles that we're going to cover here in this first study, you know, if you'll, if you'll actually apply these principles to your marriage, then you'll begin to see that the Lord actually does have a perfect plan which helps us to maintain our marital covenant. And, and with that being the case, well, we can rejoice in knowing that marriage is a mission that is possible with the help of the Lord, of course. With this as our focus, I want to take a moment to share the marital perspective that I had prior to my Christian conversion. You see, I grew up in a home with a Christian mother, and my mother was just completely committed to Christ. She just loved the Lord, and, and she loved sharing her love for the Lord. She often talked about how much she loved Jesus. And I remember I was about seven years old, and I asked my mom, I, I said, do you love Jesus more than you love my dad? I was curious if she really had more love for Jesus than my father. And without hesitation, she quickly confessed that she most certainly loved Jesus more than she loved my dad. Now, I'm sure she continued with some sort of explanation of what she meant by all of that, but I was no longer listening because I was sitting there thinking, how can my mom love another man more than she loves my dad? Of course, I don't at that point in my life, understand the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ and these sorts of things. I'm just thinking, how can this be? How can it be that my mom loves Jesus more than my dad? And it was at that point in time when I determined I was never, ever going to marry a Christian girl because I don't need this kind of competition in my life, you know? <laughs> As we fast forward 18 years to the, to the days after my Christian conversion, I finally began to understand why my mom loved Jesus more than she loved my dad. I, I began to grasp the importance of the relationship with Jesus Christ and the, the spiritual agape love that we experience in our relationship with Jesus. And, and then came the day when a few of my friends invited me to go listen to the testimonies of uh, you know, this mission team that was returning from France. I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll go check this out. It sounds interesting. And, and that's where I first saw Brenda sharing her stories about that mission trip that she had just returned from. And, and I heard about after, you know, how excited she was after coming back from France, how, how she went door to door in her neighborhood, preaching the gospel to her neighbors. And as I listened to her sharing her testimony about all of these things, you know, I just, I fell in love with her. And, and, I, and as I considered how much she loved the Lord, I knew that this was the gal that I wanted to marry. And since marrying, I can, I can assure you right now that I love Jesus more than I love Brenda. And I'm glad that she loves Jesus more than she loves me. The reason why is because Jesus won't let her divorce me. <laughs> you know, when it comes to our marital commitment, it's important for us to remember that the husband and the wife, we've actually made a covenant with each other, but also with the Lord. And our covenant that we make with the Lord in marriage is to serve our spouse 
to do so also according to the holy ordinances of the Lord. Now, a lot of couples just repeat that when they make their vows, but what does that really mean? What does that look like to serve our spouse according to the holy ordinances of the Lord? And with this as our focus here, we're going to spend our time here in this first session considering how to accomplish this marital mission according to the holy ordinance of the Lord. And as we make our way through the, the text before us this morning... We're going to begin to see, first of all, that we ought to serve our spouse by maintaining our marital priorities. Secondly, we'll consider how we should serve our spouse by maintaining our marital pleasure. Thirdly, we'll consider how we ought to serve our spouse by maintaining our marital profit. Now, with this as the outline, if you would, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here we find Paul, he's presenting us with the Lord's plan for the mission of marriage. And as you're making your way to the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to address a very common misconception about marriage. I I really can't even begin to tell you how many times I've heard well-meaning Christians refer to marriage as their first ministry. You ever heard that? Well, marriage is your first ministry. Now, I understand the sentiment of this statement. And yet, listen, it might not be as biblical as we might like it to be. The reason I say this is because this approach at marriage, that, that marriage is our first ministry, this approach oftentimes results in a failure to keep Christ first in our lives. If we make our spouse first in our lives, then... Is Christ no longer first? And, and there's different ways to, to approach this because, you know, some might say, well, I keep my spouse as the first human in my life. And I, okay, I get that. But listen, we have to make sure that we're not turning our spouse into an idol by thinking that, oh, well, marriage is my first ministry. And to make my case, I want to consider the way that Paul addresses this here in our text today. So if you would look with me here at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to begin our study beginning at verse 29. Here Paul declares, this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profits, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's presenting the Christians there in Corinth with marital instructions which, well, seem to be in conflict 
with those who insist that our marriage is our first ministry. Now, I'm sure we've all heard those who have encouraged us with this sort of marital counsel, and, and maybe you're you know, having some conflict uh, in your marriage, and you talk to other believers, maybe even your pastor, and they say something like, marriage is your first ministry, so take care of your spouse, and these sorts of things. And listen, I can't help, uh, tell you how many times I've actually heard this floating around in our own church as this axiom is amplified in the atmosphere by well-meaning believers who are simply trying to strike a balance between their family and their church. And listen, this, this principle sounds super spiritual. We hear it and go, oh yeah, 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 that, that, that makes sense. And yet I can't help but to wonder how we should square this, this advice, how should we square this belief with the point that Paul is presenting here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. With this question in mind, let's back up and take a closer look at these verses. I want to begin again at verse 29. Here Paul declares this, I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Wow. As we take a closer look at this verse, it's important to realize that Paul was in no way suggesting that husbands are free from their marital covenant. So husbands don't don't leave here today and you know make your wife take a Uber home. <laughs> That's not the point here. Paul's not saying that husbands are free from their marital covenant. No, and the, and the proof of my point is actually found in the context of this chapter where Paul reminds the Christians there in Corinth that every married Christian is bound by their marital commitment until the covenant is dissolved by death or by the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. So as we take into consideration the greater context, Paul is saying, hey, your, your covenant is, is to be kept until death or abandonment. With that being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, what in the world was Paul suggesting when he instructed Christian husbands to live as if they have no wife from that day until the end? Does this mean that we should sleep in a spare room at the house? Should we eat dinner by ourselves? Should we identify as a single on our social media accounts? Or at the very least, just say, hey, it's complicated because of Paul. Think about it. If it's true that we should live as if we have no wife, then why should we also think that our marriage is our first ministry? If we've been called to live as if we have no spouse, then why do we call our marriage our first ministry? And and while there should be no doubt that every Christian husband has been called to love their wife like Christ loves the church, we've also been called to live our lives as if we have no wife. So I don't know what you're doing here, but... Well, it's, it's my turn to speak, so I'm going to explain. Well, I'm asking you, how do, we, how do we reconcile these instructions? What am I supposed to do here? Well, let's see. Let's okay. find out. All right. So in order to solve this conundrum, let's look at the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look with me at verse 29 where Paul declared, This I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. As we broaden our scope, we notice how Paul was addressing the way in which we spend our time. And in the middle of verse 28, he informs us that the time is short. And again, in verse 31, he refers to the way in which the form of this world is already passing away. 
So in other words, Paul is reminding his readers that it won't be long before the world, the ways of this world will come to an end. Paul was encouraging Christians to adjust their priorities accordingly. So we all have a limited amount of time each and every day. And so every day we're making decisions based on the priorities that we've set for our lives. So in light of this, we would do well to examine our lives by asking, do I have the right priorities? Am I spending too much time weeping? Am I spending too much time rejoicing? Do I spend too much time working uh, because I want to buy more stuff? Uh, Am I wasting too much time on vacation? Uh, What about the time I spend on my marriage uh, versus my ministry at church? Am I striking a biblical balance or am I failing to maintain the right ministry priorities? And with this in mind, most Christians struggle to maintain the right ministry priorities. For example, there are many Christians who overextend themselves because they love to serve at church. But sadly, what they fail to recognize is that their spouse is becoming bitter because they feel neglected. In contrast, there are selfish spouses who are quick to insist that there's no time to serve at church, and so rather than becoming active members at their fellowship of faith, they insist that they are already serving the Lord at home. Uh, But sadly, both of these examples are based on a leadership hierarchy that fails to recognize the Lord's place in the marriage. Yeah, I think that's a good point, you know, and, and, uh, you know, when this conflict begins to happen in the marital relationship, it's oftentimes spouse against spouse, rather than husband and wife saying, hey, let's pray, let's seek the Lord Jesus about this, let's, let's ask the Lord to direct both of us in these decisions. And in order to further grasp uh, the point here, let's back up, let's, let's take another look at our text today. Uh, if you would look with me back at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to begin reading once again at verse 29. Here Paul declares, this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Now, I want to stop right here. You see, it's here in verses 32 and 33 where I think Paul is explaining what he meant back in verse 29. When Paul instructs married Christians to live as if they aren't married, he wasn't actually encouraging them to live like singles. And it's sad to say that there are many couples who still live live as if they are singles. They keep their bank accounts separate. They make decisions without considering the other person, you know, and, and they live as if they're still a single, just making decisions by themselves rather than working together with their spouse to come to a marital point of view or a marital conclusion. And that's, that's dangerous. We shouldn't live like we're singles, And yet, here he's encouraging Christian couples to make sure that as couples, they're first submitting their relationship to the Lord. And what this means then is that both the husband and the wife should realize that neither of us are actually in charge. Now, I get it. We can get into the whole hierarchy of marriage and talk about how the husband is like Christ and the wife is like the church and these sorts of things. And all that is true. But at the end of the day, we are two equal components of a couple that is supposed to submit themselves, their relationship to the Lord. And so we must realize that before I'm a servant of my spouse, before Brenda becomes a servant of her husband, 
that we're supposed to be servants of the Lord first. Therefore, what is our first ministry? It's our ministry unto the Lord. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter three. It's verses 23 and 24 where he declares whatever you do. So, so the, that Greek word that's translated whatever, get this. It, it comes from, this Greek word actually means whatever. And not like whatever, you know, but, but whatever. Whatsoever we do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men or not to people. We should do everything heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. We are first and foremost servants of the Lord. Christian, listen, every believer has been called to become servants of our Savior. While there should be no doubt that we've been called to serve our spouse, it's crucial for every Christian couple to realize that those who put their spouse first will inevitably turn their spouse into an idol. If you put your spouse first in your life, then you're making them an idol because Jesus is supposed to be first in our lives. Think about it. Those who put their spouse first are simultaneously dethroning Christ Jesus from the throne of our hearts. And I can assure you that this is a decision which will always bear bad fruit no matter the marriage. Please trust me when I tell you that the ministry of marriage must be based upon our commitment to Christ Jesus first. In other words, our marital priorities must come from the leading of the Lord. And so if the Lord is calling us to serve in multiple ministries at the church, then we ought to obey the Lord. And we should step up and serve the Lord according to his calling. At the same time, if the Lord is leading us to step down from our overloaded schedule, then that's exactly what we should do according to the calling of Christ. And rather than trying to control our spouse according to our own desires and expectations, every Christian couple should prayerfully seek the leading of the Lord together. And together then we can maintain the marital priorities that he's given every couple to accomplish, both at home, at church, at work, and everywhere else. And while it's true that we should serve our spouse by maintaining our marital priorities according to the leading of the Lord, we should also serve our spouse by maintaining marital pleasure. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's consider the way that Paul puts it here in our text today. So if you would, let's look again here at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to back up and begin reading at verse 32. There Paul declares, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord how he may please the Lord, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband." Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christian couples there in Corinth to consider the conflict that often occurs as we struggle to strike the balance between pleasing our spouse and pleasing our savior. That, that's, a, that's a tough balance to strike there, pleasing our spouse versus pleasing our savior. And just to be clear, the word please, it's found there in verses 32, 33, and 34. That word please is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who strive to make others happy. The same word uh, was used of those who accommodate themselves 
to the opinions and the desires and even the interests of others, all in an attempt to bring pleasure to the one they're trying to please. And there should be no doubt that husbands and wives ought to look for every opportunity to please one another, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> we have to try to please one another without making them say please, right? Okay. <laughs> Brenda's like, oh, please. <laughs> English. All right, so... Uh, Listen, this includes the pleasure of physical intimacy, which Paul addresses back in the beginning of the same chapter. As a matter of fact, it's here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you look back at verse 1, here Paul declares this. He says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Brenda quotes this verse to me all the time. I know. He said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except uh, with uh, consent, consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now, as we consider these verses, there should be no doubt in our minds that the sexual relationship between husband and wife It isn't just about the pragmatic process for the purpose of procreation. No, instead, the physical intimacy of the sexual connection also includes the pleasure that we enjoy as husband and wife experience the amorous form of affection that we call intercourse. And in this way, the sexually active couple is also then safeguarding their marriage against the sin of adultery. Think about that. The sexually active couple is simultaneously safeguarding their marriage against the sin of adultery as they set out to please one another according to the Lord's design for marriage. At the same time, though, it's also crucial for every Christian couple to remember that we've also been called to abstain from sexual immorality, and yes, even when our spouse is failing to please us sexually. In other words, you can't say, well, you know, she wasn't putting out, so I went and, you know, hooked up with somebody else. That's, that's not right. That is sexual immorality, and it is forbidden in marriage. So to further explain, let's consider the way that Paul put it in the first epistle he sent to the church in Thessalonica. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians, and let's turn to 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4. And it's here in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians where we find Paul reminding the Christians in Thessalonica that we've been called to live our lives first and foremost for the pleasure of the Lord. And with this as the goal, we should abstain from every form of sexual immorality. So let's consider how Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at the beginning of verse 1 where he declared, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
In these verses, we find Paul reminding his readers that Christians have been called to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And while this certainly includes the call to please our spouse, we must not fail to realize that the believing husband and wife have both been called to submit to the authority of our Savior so that we can serve the pleasure of the King, Jesus. With this as the goal, we must remember that our marital pleasure must be according to the will of the Lord. So let's consider how Paul put it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at the beginning of verse 3, where he declared, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner." Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. So in these verses, we find Paul helping us to understand what the will of God is. And while it's God's will for us to be sanctified and to be set apart for his perfect purposes, it's also true that our sanctification includes a strict abstinence from every form of sexual immorality. Uh, This not only includes uh, adultery, but it it includes pornography, and it includes uh, the softcore porn that is found in most rated R movies. Yeah, you know, most of the movies that we go watch in these days include some level of softcore porn, and Christians go watch these movies like it's no big deal. And yet, according to the Bible, we're not supposed to be engaging in pornography, so... Yeah, gotta gotta check these things out before we go submit ourselves to whatever the latest movie wants to input into our minds. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's consider how Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, where he declared, "You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out." and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So before you accuse Jesus of being too legalistic, I encourage you to remember that he is the king of kings and we've been called to serve at his pleasure. And according to him, we should not only abstain from the sin of adultery, but we should also avoid every form of uh, pornography that would lead us to engage in adulterous thoughts. And with this as the goal, we'll do well to take drastic measures um, in order to avoid these sexual sins, which do not please the Lord. Yeah, I like the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 13, verses 12 through 14, where he declares, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And when Paul says make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts, he's effectively encouraging us to stop spending our time thinking about ways that we might indulge our evil desires. You know, I'm sure we all struggle with evil desires from time to time. But then you take it a step further when you start preparing to then act upon those thoughts. Those who spend time mentally entertaining their lustful desires, 
then start looking for ways to act out the lustful imaginations that they've been entertaining. And with that being the case, Paul encouraged every Christian to remain sober-minded. And, and this, this is important, guys. Uh, you know, we need to be sober-minded, which means, hey, we, we shouldn't be uh, altering our minds with substances and chemicals that, that might cause us to then lower our inhibitions, which then would then lead us to go and look for ways to act upon lustful desire. So we need to be sober-minded. He says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So, so we need to avoid uh, you know, drunkenness. We need to be sober-minded so that we can abstain from sexual immorality. And with all this in mind, it's crucial for every Christian couple to realize that those who want to maintain their marital pleasure according to the will of the Lord, they must first determine to become those believers who are living a life that pleases the Lord. If you want to make sure that you know how to please your spouse, begin by first pleasing the Lord. You see, those who set out to please their spouse first, if that's at the top of the list, well, they're running the risk of living for the lust of the flesh the very minute their wife or their husband fails to please them. If you're living your life for pleasure, you know, if, you're, if you become this sort of hedonistic Christian that just wants pleasure, well, the minute your spouse is no longer pleasing you, what are you going to do? You're going to go look for someone else who will please you. And in that way, you start engaging in the sins of sexual immorality. And so we have to be careful that we're first living for the pleasure of the Lord. We have to live our lives for the pleasure of the Lord first. And as we do, he will help us to maintain marital pleasure with our spouse. Now, this brings us to our third and final point, because listen, the Christian couple is not only called to maintain our marital priorities according to the leading of the Lord, and the Christian couple is not only maintaining their marital pleasure by living a life that first pleases the Lord, but the Christian couple should also maintain marital profit by loving the Lord more than we love money. To explain what I mean by this, let's consider the way uh, that we have to serve our spouse in the most profitable way possible. And so let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here we find Paul referring to the profit enjoyed by those who serve their spouse. If you would look with me again, beginning at verse 35, here Paul declares, and this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Here in this verse, we find Paul, he's assuring his audience that this plan that he's been presenting, uh, the, the verses that we've been covering, this is the most profitable plan for every Christian couple. If you're thinking, well, Paul's just being legalistic. He's just trying to put a leash on us. He's just trying to control us. Paul says, no, I'm not, do I'm not doing that. I'm not trying to put a leash on you. I'm trying to present you with the tools you need so that you can enjoy the most amount of profit or, or, or that you might have a profitable marriage, so to speak. That word profit, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of the advantages that result in the returns, rewards, even riches that benefit the recipients. And while it's not uncommon for Christian couples to pick a path that will ensure financial profits, it's sad to say that this focus on finances oftentimes results in marital conflicts that end up causing many divorces. And to prove my point, I want to consider a few stats here. According to a recent survey conducted by Forbes, 24% of divorcees claim that financial stress was the reason for their divorce. 
almost a quarter of divorcees say that financial stress led up to the divorce. And it's also interesting to note that 43% of divorcees admit that they initially married their spouse for the sake of financial security. They didn't marry them because the Lord led them. They didn't marry them because this was a beautiful believer that they could, you know, serve the Lord together with. No, nope. They wanted financial security. That was their, that was their number one goal here. With that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to discover that disagreements about money is one of the most common conflicts to arise within every marital relationship. And, and one reason why is because, you know, in any marriage, you know, you know, you might have one who's a saver and one who's a spender. You know, some couples, you know... Yeah, unsavory is a spender. Well, some couples don't... I mean, if she only realized how many mountain bikes I needed, then... just trying to obey Jesus. But uh, <laughs> some couples argue about the lack of finances. You know, that is their concern that there's not, not enough money coming in. Others argue about, you know, how much time people should be spending at work, how much overtime should be, you know, uh, you know happening within, within, you know, uh, within the life of each person. And to sum it up with simplicity, listen, there's just no shortages, uh, there's no shortage of arguments that could arise over financial di- disagreements within every marriage. Yeah. So with that being the case, let's consider the value. She's still thinking about the bike that I want. <laughs> So let's consider the vows that we made on the day when we were married. Chances are your pastor led you in the traditional vows, which included the promise to remain together for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do you part. I think, I think at least half of the couples that make these vows, all they hear is for better, for richer, <laughs> for, for health, and we'll never die, you know, and, and, and then... You know, six months in, pheromones are gone, you know, and all of a sudden it's just like, this is worse, poorer, and sick, you know, and we're out of here. I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, you did. Yes, you did. Yep. So, so financial disagreements is not a biblical reason to file for divorce. What was that again? It's not. What's not? The financial disagreements. Financial disagreements are not biblical grounds for divorce. Huh. So, and conflicts over cash is nothing more than a distraction, which can keep us from serving our Savior. So it's for this reason that Paul encouraged every Christian couple to focus on the righteous returns of spiritual rewards. So let's consider how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 35, where he declared, This I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction." In this verse, we find Paul encouraging the Christian couples at Corinth to avoid the distractions that occur whenever we allow our pursuit of worldly wealth to keep us from serving our Savior. The phrase without distraction was translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who are free from domestic concerns. And while it's easy for us to become anxious about the financial needs that seem to increase every year, Paul encouraged us to set aside those domestic concerns so that we can spend time serving our Savior Jesus. Trust me when I tell you, the Christian couple that places the pursuit of worldly wealth as their 
primary priority will find themselves on a career path that will only take their family further and further away from the Lord. And it's sad to say that Christian couples who prioritize their financial portfolio above their commitment to Christ Jesus will end up discovering that the, that the distractions created by our love of worldly wealth could end up creating the sort of marital conflict which has destroyed an untold number of marriages. And it's for this reason that we should serve our spouse by simply learning how to be content. Yeah, we, we should learn to serve our spouse by simply learning how to be content. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the warning that Paul presented in the first letter that he sent to Pastor Timothy. If you will, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you make your way there to the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, I want to take a moment to point out that the most profitable way for every Christian couple to live is to first develop a distraction-free perspective, which helps us to keep Christ first in our marriage. In other words, every distraction that comes along, everything that would, would take our attention off of the leading of the Lord, we ought to you know, deal with that distraction in a way that we bring it to the Lord. We take that distraction and place it at the feet of the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, help us to deal with this distraction. And, 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 and therefore, we must make sure that when it comes to like financial distractions, when it comes to financial concerns, we, we need to make sure that we love the Lord more than we love the wealth of the world. Those who love the wealth of the world more are then driven by their love for wealth. And so they start making decisions based on that love. The, the, their number one love is wealth, so all of their decisions is driven by wealth. Well, we have, to, we have to free ourselves from that sort of wealth-driven distraction by making sure that we love the Lord more than we love money. And in this way, we'll learn how to be content with the perfect provision of the one who promised to meet our every need. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look with me there, beginning at verse 6. Here he declares, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows." Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping Pastor Timothy to understand that those who love money more than they love the Lord, well, they end up traveling the broad road that leads where? To destruction. That's what he says. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And it's sad to say that there are many Christian couples that end up on this path that leads to the, to the destruction of their marriage. And, and simply because they made the pursuit of financial profits the highest priority in their lives. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to make sure that we're pursuing the right marital profit. And, and we do this by keeping Jesus first in our marriage. With this as the goal, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, do I love money more than I love my Messiah? Do I love money more than I love my Messiah? And before we rush to, the, to answer this question, we should take a moment to consider our commitment to Christ Jesus. 
Is our commitment to Christ Jesus greater than our commitment to our financial portfolio? Are we quick to skip church whenever the opportunity arises to make more money with overtime hours? Do we refrain from serving at church because, well, we just want to avoid any scheduling conflicts with work? You know, work might need me, so I just I really can't make any commitments at church. That's one telltale sign that you might love money more than you love the Lord. Are we more concerned about making it to work on time than we are with making it to church on time? I got to make it to work on time because I got to make that money. But, you know, there's grace at church. It doesn't matter if I show up, you know, towards the end of the worship set. Doesn't really matter if I show up every week. If this is the mentality that we have when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, it's possible that you might just love money more than you love the Lord. And if this is true of you, then I can assure you that you're going to miss out on the marital profits that the Lord has promised to provide for the Christian couples who make him the priority of their marriage. And so if you want to make sure that your spouse and yourself, that, that you're receiving the eternal rewards that the Lord wants to give us, then we encourage you, make it your priority to pursue the path of godliness. Because remember, godliness with what? With a desire for more money is great gain? No. Paul says godliness with contentment. Pursuing a life of godliness while being content with the perfect provision of the Lord, godliness with the contentment of being okay with praying for daily bread. I pray for daily bread. I love bread. <laughs> so every day, Lord, just provide me with daily bread. We have to learn how to rely on the Lord rather than trying to build our own empire here in this country. We need to learn how to be godly and content with the perfect provision of the Lord. And in this way, you know, we'll stop arguing about finances. We'll wait for the Lord to give me the bike I want. <laughs> and we'll learn how to simply serve one another by first submitting ourselves, even our finances, to our Savior. Christian, listen, if you want to make sure that your marriage is a mission that's possible then it's important to remember that we ought to be serving our spouse by first serving the Lord. And with this as the goal, we encourage every couple in closing to remember that we maintain marital priorities according to the leading of the Lord. We also maintain our marital pleasure by first living a life that pleases the Lord. And we maintain our marital profit by loving the Lord more than we love money. And to sum it up with simplicity, you know, the best plan for our marriage is to make sure that we're simply submitting to our Savior, Jesus, first. And as we submit, uh, you know, our marriage to the leadership of the Lord, then he will help us to serve our spouse in a way that makes our marriage a mission that is possible.